So do you ever wish you were living the sweet life a little more? You know, sweet life. Fancy cars, fancy house, fancy jewelry, fancy swimming pool, fancy four-car garage just for your shoes. You know, that kind of that sweet life. I would imagine all of us have had a time where we like the sweet life a little bit. We've kind of longed for some of the, the finer things in life. But this is the time of year when you talk about the sweet life and you're in a whole other conversation, right? Because the last week of October, you talk about the sweet life, you're talking about candy. That's what all this is about this week is candy, candy, candy. I came across a list of the best and the worst candy that a kid can get for Halloween. Just one from each list. Here's one from, from the best list. Skittles. College journalist Drew Novick says this. Skittles are like M&M's if M&M's were made with real fruit flavor. Skittles are made with real fruit, right? Well, of course they are. You keep telling your dentist that. Second one from the worst list now, and that's cheap bubble gum. Again, Drew Novak says this, The flavor is pretty decent while it lasts. Fifteen seconds later, you're left with a mouthful of silly putty and the distinct feeling that you've been betrayed. All of us have been there. You know, the, the one, the flat rectangular one that has the grooves in it? It's terrible 15 seconds later. It's awful. But candy is not the only place in talking about the sweet life where you might feel betrayed. George Carroll was a billionaire in Beaumont, Texas in the late 1800s and early 1900s. His family had a successful lumber business, but George made his fortune in the oil business. In fact, his oil business completely changed Beaumont, Texas, where he lived. In fact, it changed it in such a way the prosperity was so great for their community that he actually got discouraged because he saw prosperity in Beaumont led to rampant, widespread immorality, all kinds of immorality in every way that you can imagine, and it discouraged him. And so he switched gears a little bit, and George started radically investing his fortune in the work of the church in his community in the work of Christian ministries in that community, people who were trying to bring the gospel and bring good into a depraved and immoral place. In fact, by 1923, George had given away almost all of his fortune, and someone asked him, don't you wish you would have kept a little more for yourself? And this is what George said. To the contrary, all I have is what I have given away. In other words, George discovered that the sweet life wasn't so sweet after all. So, you might be able to get a little bit of sweetness out of a stick of bubble gum for about 15 seconds. You might be able to get a little bit of sweetness out of a, a stack of billions for about 15 years, maybe more. But the reality is, is it still fades away eventually. So is there a sweet life that lasts longer than 15 seconds? Is there a sweet life that, that lasts longer than 15 years or even 15 decades? Is there a sweet life that doesn't turn into a silly putty? Is there a sweet life that has a well that never runs dry? Well, yes, there is. In fact, it's the sweetest life that exists anywhere in the universe. But interestingly, the sweetest life that exists anywhere in the universe involves a great deal of fear. Fear and the sweet life. That sounds a little strange. What does that mean? Well, we're going to let Jesus 
help us answer that question. Listen to Luke chapter 12, beginning with verse 4. Jesus says, I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. Depending on what kind of abacus Luke was using here, there is about 3,000 to 10,000 people crowded around Jesus in this moment. Some of the people in this crowd of thousands, they, they looked at Jesus with amazement. Some of these people in the crowd looked at Jesus with anger. And some of these people looked at Jesus with apathy. They didn't care who he was or what he was doing. They heard a rumor there was going to be a free buffet. So they just showed up for the show. They didn't know what was going on. They just didn't care. Just to help us get a picture of this crowd, Spirit Communications Park across the river where the fireflies play baseball. If they're having a a big event like an outdoor concert, they can have about 15,000 people that they can take care of. But the actual official capacity of the stadium is 7,501. It's always that one guy, right? So 7,501. I want you to imagine that 7,501 people not sitting orderly in the nice stands that line the stadium, but all of those people out in the middle of the field, crowding and pressing and shoving, all trying to get a little closer near to where second base is. Because out near second base, there's this new celebrity, and everybody wants to catch a glimpse of the new celebrity. And so they're pushing and they're shoving all in one big pile. That's a little bit of the scene of what we have here in this moment with Jesus. And in that moment, with no sound system, with no jumbotron, with with no way to get his message out to everybody in the crowd, Jesus turns to his friends, the people that were closest to him, his, his followers, and he begins to talk to them. Now, he's not whispering. But he's not standing on a chair and shouting out loud. But but more than just his close friends are going to hear what he's saying. And so what does Jesus say to them in the middle of this huge crowd of people that's pushing and shoving? Jesus says, don't be afraid of people who can kill you. (laughs) There you go. A bit timely, right? I'm sure some of his friends were thinking, all right, well, I think I'm getting ready to get killed right now. You know, I'm in the middle of this crowd. People are shoving and stepping on one another. I guess this is very timely. So that's Jesus' words to them. Hey, don't be afraid of people who can kill you. I mean, that didn't sound much like a Hallmark greeting card, right? <laughs> I mean, I'm not going to get a magnet for my wife to put on the refrigerator. Hey, don't be afraid of people that, don't, that don't, can kill you, you know? I mean, this, this is a strange sentence from Jesus. And yet it's a pretty clear sentence. But then he goes on. He says, don't be afraid of people who can kill you because all they can do is kill you. This is getting more encouraging, right? If you're part of the crowd, you're really enjoying this moment. I mean, this, this sounds a little strange, right? I mean, can you imagine, you know, Grandpa George saying this to little Jimmy? Little Jimmy, happy birthday. Excited for your birthday. Got a little birthday message for you, some special birthday advice. Here it is. Pay attention close. Don't be afraid of people who can kill you. It's not prudent. But then... Grandpa George says, but, 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 little Jimmy, listen to this. Cheer up. All they can do is kill you. (laughs) There's a birthday greeting, right? That's what you want Grandpa George to say to you. This is a little strange. It, It sounds a little bit crazy. So what in the world is Jesus doing? Well, he's doing what he often does, especially when there's a crowd around. He's drawing a line in the sand. Jesus is is creating a conversation where if you're listening, 
you are hearing a question in your heart. And this question is one you know only has two answers. You've got to go one way or the other. Jesus didn't put anybody in a headlock, but he's very clear. Here's something that you must consider. Here's a question for your heart. And what is this question that he's creating? Well, it's a pretty simple question here, and that's this. Who are you afraid of? Who are you afraid of? Are you afraid of your husband the last three minutes of the game on Saturday night? Is that a time that you're a little afraid of your husband? Are you afraid of your wife before she has her morning coffee in the morning? Are you afraid of your kid after he's had a bucket full of Halloween Skittles? Are you afraid of your teenager pretty much all the time? Are you afraid of your teacher? Are you afraid of your boss? Are you afraid of a political candidate? See, Jesus is, is hitting at the worst disease in your life, the most dangerous disease in your life, and that disease is the fear of man. Well, what is the fear of man? Well, it looks a lot of different ways all day long for all of us. But let's just see if we can kind of get our minds thinking about this concept of the fear of man with, with a couple of rounds of questions. So here's round one. Why did you buy that certain style or brand of shoe? Why did you get your haircut that, that certain way when you got your haircut? Why did you choose that job or that career? Why do you exercise? Why did you take that sentence out of your essay paper? Why did you take that chart out of your report? Why did you take that illustration out of your sermon? Now, just a quick glance at those things. Those are, those are some decisions we could make very nobly, right? I mean, none of those things really scream, oh, the fear of man. They're just, just decisions, just, just trying to prime our pump a little bit. So here's round two of questions. Why does your toddler 374 times a day say, Mommy, look! Look, Mommy, look! Why, when you turned 14, did your shower time go from two minutes to two hours? Why do you spend so much time on social media? Why do you look to see who liked your post? Why do you hope someone will retweet your tweet? Why do you put your team's flags and magnets on your car? Why do you swap out the flowers and the flower bed in the front yard almost every single week? Why do you get a tattoo? Why do you still go inside of the bank lobby to do all of your transactions? <laughs> I just called my dad out in the middle of a sermon. You know, why do you still go inside of the bank? Why do you color your hair? Why do you advertise your business? Why do you comb your hair? Why do you go for the no-comb look? Why do you go for the comb-over look? Really, this is a question that we need to answer in society. Don't go for the comb-over look. All of these things point us to something, hopefully, that, that catch a little more of a nerve. And it's this. No matter who you are, no matter what side of the tracks you grew up on, no matter what you do for a living, no matter how much you say, well, I don't care what people think about me, no matter how humble you are or low-key you are, at the end of the day, we all share one simple thing. We have a desire to be seen. We have a desire to be affirmed and approved. See, we want people to say, that guy does a good job. 
We want people to say he's a, a good repairman. He's a good worker. She's a good teacher. See, we want to make good grades. We want sales to increase. We want someone to say that was a great casserole. We want someone to say, you know what? He really saved well and retired well. We want somebody to say, man, I love your Halloween costume. And those things aren't evil. None of those things are evil. But they can get dangerous. And the time they can get dangerous is when they switch from being just a desire to being a driving desire. To being a desire that we can't shake and can't get rid of. See, that's where this notion of having a desire to be seen switches over to the philosophy of being afraid of people, fear of people, fear of man. We might think, oh, well, this fear of man thing, that's, that's just because of social media. No, actually, it's been going on for a long time. 116 years ago, more than 116 years ago, J.C. Ryle said this, Thousands would never hesitate a moment to storm a breach or face a lion who dare not face the laughter of relatives, neighbors, and friends. That's a fear of man. See, a a fear of what people might think about us. A fear of what people might say to us. A fear of what people might do to us. That is the fear of man. Now, you might be thinking, ah, come on, so what? What's, what's the big deal? So, so I worry a little bit about people liking me. So I, I worry a little bit about, about people accepting me. So I worry a little bit about, about my, my coach's approval or my boss's approval. So I worry a little bit about my spouse's approval or my, my parents' approval. So I worry a little bit about what that boy or that girl in the mall food court is going to think about my hair. So what if I worry a little bit? What's the big deal. Well, here's the big deal. John Bloom writes, we obey the one we fear. We obey the one we fear. See, when we fear man, we we give authority to that man, that woman. We fear people. We give authority to those people to, to rule over our lives in ways that they should not. Now, we're not talking about good, honorable, measurable authority. That's, that's not the kind of authority we're talking about. There's, there's honorable, measurable authority that, that needs to be given to parents and grandparents, it needs to be given to law enforcement, it needs to be given to, to local leaders and state leaders and, and national leaders, it needs to be given to military leaders and, and judges and, and principals and teachers and pastors. There, there's some authority there, some honorable authority that needs to be given. And the reality is when we look at our culture, we are quick to point the finger. But at the end of the day, throughout scriptures and throughout history, everything goes back to what happens at home. So this lack of honoring and and a a good measurable authority, this, this lack that we see in our culture today, those things started at home and then they have worked their way out into our community. And just as a reminder, just to to remember how this plays out in our our current time, the the decomposition of home life and authority at home and and taking that honored authority out and using it in the community, that's not something that's new either. If you haven't noticed, neither of our main candidates are millennials. They're not immoral college students. They're not in their 30s. 
So when we look at all that's being said in the media today about all the lies and all the indecency and all the immorality, we are fools to think that all started 10 years ago. The seeds of lies and immorality that we are so upset about now, just looking at ages, those seeds were planted in American culture more than 60 years ago. And even more than that, if we're really going to get down to the nitty-gritty, those seeds were planted when the woman grabbed the fruit and the man said, sure, why not? Yeah, the reality is we need a lot more honorable authority. In my house and your house and the White House and all the other houses, we, we need more. Jesus, though, is not talking about healthy, honorable authority here. He's talking about unhealthy authority. He's talking about the, the kind of authority where you give somebody a blank check to rule over your emotions, to rule over your feelings, to rule over your actions in a sinful, unhelpful, degrading way. Counselor Ed Welch, who wrote a book that I highly recommend to you when people are big and God is small, said this about why we fear people. We fear people because they can expose and humiliate us. We fear people because they can reject, ridicule, or despise us. We fear people because they can attack, oppress, or threaten us. So let's just take 72 hours, or if you want to do a whole week. Any of those things in your life? You're experiencing any of those things, exposure, humiliation, rejection, ridicule, being despised, being attacked, being oppressed, being threatened. Have any of those things happened to you this week? See, here's the thing about the fear of man. The fear of man, it will run your life, it will attack your happiness, and it will steal your freedom. And so Jesus, in this huge crowd of people, turns to his friends and he says, guys, don't fear man. But he says it so much more intensely, right? He says, don't fear people who can kill you, because after all, all they can do is kill you. That's all they can do. And i got to be honest, if, if I'm in the middle of that crowd, <laughs> and this is it, like if there's nothing else, I, I might be thinking Jesus is a little crazy here. You know? what, what is he talking about? But what in the world? Don't be afraid of people who can kill me, because after all, all they can do is kill me. You know, I, I'm going to need a little more help here. Well, Jesus is going to give it. See, he's given a do and a don't. He gives the don't first, and then he gives the do. Look at verse 5. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him, exclamation point. Jesus is not doing hard math here, right? Don't fear man, fear God. Don't fear man, but fear God. Now you may be thinking, what do you mean fear God? I thought, thought God was supposed to be love. I thought God was the guy with all the amazing grace. What do you mean I'm supposed to fear him? Well, let's try to answer that question by keeping it in the context of what's going on in the middle of this crowd of people. Jesus was hated by the religious leaders in the community. They hated him. 
And they set about to make a plan to have him arrested and have him executed on a cross outside of Jerusalem. And they carried out their plan thinking that they had succeeded. What they didn't know was that in accordance with the sovereignty of God, this was how God was planning things out all along. God was always over these things. What they intended for evil, God turned into good. And the reason he turned it into good is because the death of Jesus on the cross and his resurrection opened the way for you to be right with God. Opened the way for you to be able to be truly safe and truly free. So this is what's happening in this scene. And if they would arrest and execute Jesus, what do you think they would do to his friends? What do you think they'd do to the people that were following him? Maybe the same things, right? So Jesus, in the middle of this crowd, turns to his closest followers, and he encourages them for the persecution they were going to face. He encourages them for the execution that some of them were going to face. And how does he encourage them? He encourages them with fear, death, and hell. There you go, right? That's always encouraging. Sure, that'd lift your spirits any time, right? But there's great encouragement here, but maybe not in the way that we normally think of being encouraged. I was reminded of my reading this week that, that these are not the words of Billy Graham. And these are not the words of John Knox or John Calvin or Jonathan Edwards. These are not the words of Charles Stanley or Adrian Rogers. These are not the words of that old scrubbed Al Welsh either. These are the words of Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God. They're not easy words, but they're his words. Fear, death, hell. So if a person wants to argue and debate the notion of eternal life and eternal death and the reality of hell, they will have to go directly and deal with Jesus because this is what Jesus says. Luke, he he writes this whole letter like a a seasoned investigative reporter. He, He writes this whole letter like he's a meticulous historian. He really wants to get the clearest picture, the truest picture that he possibly can. So if you read through Luke, if you read through this letter, what you will not find is a long-haired, cool, hippie Jesus wearing a toga and flashing a peace sign everywhere he went. Now, you'll find the Son of God who one day said, you need to fear God because only he has authority over your soul. Just a casual glance at the teachings of Jesus make two things very real. Death is real, and hell is real. And because those two things are real, then there's a reality that most of us, and many of us, even as Christians, sometimes want to blow off. Jeff Thomas puts it this way, not all men are eternally safe. Not everyone will go to heaven. There are a lot of brilliant people who have lived, a lot of brilliant people who are living right now, a lot of brilliant people who will live later, who in really convincing, intelligent ways explain away the existence of Jesus sometimes, explain away the existence of eternal life or the existence of hell. They, they question the validity of the harshest statements that Jesus has ever made. And I want you to know those smart, intelligent, convincing people are smart, intelligent, and convincing. 
But I also want you to know that I can't make you believe in Jesus. I can't make you believe in the Bible. But I can put the words of Jesus in front of you. And and I can plead with you to, to read them, to listen to them. And I can hope that the Spirit of God will help you see them and embrace them and that the Spirit would would capture your heart with the truth about Jesus and that you would find salvation in this one true treasure. It's an interesting time, an interesting moment. Jesus speaking in a huge, gigantic crowd, speaking words that are tough and hard. But the reality is Jesus said tough, hard things a lot. And again, if you, if you look at the person of Jesus, what he said and what he did, his attitude and his actions, all of these things were consistent. There's so much evidence that Jesus was not only real, but so much evidence that he was the Son of God, so much evidence that all that he said was true. In fact, it takes much more faith to read about Jesus and call him a hoax and a fairy tale. So when it comes to eternal life and eternal death and the reality of hell, I'm compelled to believe that that Jesus was not lying. Again, Jeff Thomas put it this way, I cannot believe he was crying wolf. So again, why does this matter? I mean, what's the big deal? Why did Jesus encourage his friends like this? Why did he encourage them with, with this hard language? Why was Jesus drawing this line for that crowd? And how about this? Why was Jesus drawing that line for this crowd? Why was Jesus drawing that line for me and for you? Well, I think he was doing it for two main reasons. The first is to to redirect the desire of your soul. And the second is to redirect the destination of your soul. Philip Holmes writes this, Jesus does not intend to suppress our desire to be seen, but in fact he encourages it. Instead of condemning it, he wants to redirect it. So remember we were talking earlier about our desire to be seen? That's not evil in and of itself. But Jesus is saying you want to be seen by the wrong people. He's telling his friends you want to be seen by people who probably will want to kill you in a few months, in a few years. You're wanting to be seen And you're wanting to be approved of by people who actually don't really care about you. And so he wants to redirect this desire to be seen, not by man, not by women, not by people, but by the one who fearfully and wonderfully created you. He wants to redirect your attention to the God who is perfect in justice, the God who will not let the sins of this world go unpunished. Mind you, he may not punish it according to your timetable. God may not deal with sin when you want him to deal with sin. And can I just say, you should be super glad about that. And so should I. That God is gracious and merciful. But he will deal with every nasty, awful thing you've read on the internet this week. And he will deal with every nasty leader and every nasty employee, every single person who dishonors and defames God, including Christians, there is some measurement of God dealing with that. But here's the beauty. For the believer, when all of that sin is seen, there's this moment 
that Jesus says, this one is with me. And everything changes in that moment. Jesus is trying to redirect us to the one who in rich mercy provided a way for us to be rescued. John Bloom writes this, the fear of man is a snare because man is a false God, but the fear of the Lord is safe because he really is God. Our hope for you is that the mercy of the Lord will redirect your soul to Jesus. Our hope for you is that the mercy of the Lord will redirect and rescue the destination of your soul. And if he's already done that, then I I pray that you would feel confirmed in that. And if he has not, I pray that your soul squirms. Not because I'm mean, but because we love you. On February 9th, 1555, John Hooper was burned alive and executed. The reason he was burned alive, the reason he was taken away for execution is under the authority of Queen Mary at the time, he refused to believe that the Bible taught that it was wrong for a priest to get married. He also refused to believe that that when the Lord's Supper was happening, that somehow supernaturally, the, the bread and the cup supernaturally became the actual body and blood of Jesus. He refused to believe these things, and so he was arrested, he was tried, he was convicted, and then he was burned alive. A few days before he was executed, an official, Sir Anthony Kingston, came to see him. And he tried to encourage him, hey man, recant. Get this thing up. Why are you going to lose your life over this? And this is exactly what Sir Anthony said to him. Consider that life is sweet and death is bitter. It's good, right? I mean, that would be what we would say probably, right? Hey man, why, why are you going to die? Man, life, life is good. I mean, death, death is bitter. Death is, is hard. Why, why are you going to die? Consider that life is sweet and death is bitter. This is what Hooper said back to him. The life to come is more sweet and the death to come is more bitter. See, Hooper had, had discovered the sweet life that the one true sweetest life in the universe. It's the life that causes you to to get up in the morning and to pray and to be wise and to head out into the day with a mixture of confusion and and frustration and joy and happiness sometimes, but but you still head out and, and you still go to the kitchen table and you still go to the classroom. You still go to the office and you still go to the job site. You go to the hospital. You go to the nursing home. You go to the evacuation shelter. You go to the voting booth. But you do not go with fear. You do not, you do not, you do not go with fear because the sweet life pulls you back into this moment that even if hell endeavors to shake your soul, your Redeemer will never, no, never, no, never forsake you. There's no power of hell. There's no scheme of man that can ever pluck you from the hand of Jesus. 
dear friend, that is the only sweet life. There is no other. And it is the sweetest life today and forever. And it is all in Jesus. All in Jesus.